goodness. Well, good morning, church. So excited to be here with you all. I'm excited that Easter is right around the corner. I was thinking how it's criminally unfair that Easter is three months and two days apart from Christmas this year. And uh, just the amount of time to get from Christmas to Easter was so packed in. But I am absolutely excited for that and uh, excited for you to come and uh, bring uh, those family members who will come on Easter. It's only been three months since they came the last time because they came on Christmas with you. And so uh, so that's pretty good. That's actually a win. So definitely uh, be encouraged and uh, invite them. I also wanted to say thanks to so many of you. Last week we did the ministry fair and we had so many of you uh, sign up to get involved and begin to partner with us as we just lay the foundation for what we're going to do as a church in the seasons to come. And so uh, really, really excited about that. Uh, we had the annual business meeting last week. Uh, it also went great. Thank you. So many of you showed up at that. And I really feel like the Lord gave me something I wanted to share with all of you uh, that maybe didn't have a chance to be at the annual business meeting as we jump into the series here. And uh, don't worry, we're like, an, I have an extra hour to preach today, I think. So we'll just put your seatbelts on and we'll go. But uh, I was really thinking about this idea that in the, in the immediate season, when the guest of honor shows up at your house, you always do some things, right? You put things in order, you get them ready, you know, you kick all the toys in the closet, you throw all the uh, laundry in the bathtub and throw a towel over it. And uh, no, you guys don't do that? Oh, okay, only I do that. Okay, but uh, whatever it is that you do to kind of get things ready, right? And you get, you get excited about doing things better. And I've been so blessed, as uh, so many of you have partnered, to help us get ready to do things better. It's part of why next week on Saturday we're going to show up and uh, get the place ready for Easter because, uh, man, we, we just want to serve our guests with honor and do our best in that environment. And so it's really important that we do things better. But you know what's even more important than that is that we begin to do better things. And I want to do things better because I care and I want us to do our, our best, but I really want to do better things. And I am really excited as the Lord begins to just give us more and more opportunities to serve, uh, to invest in our community and in our neighborhood, to be impact uh, difference makers in the kingdom. That is really, really excited to me. And I just really believe that we're on a journey to do better things. And so, uh, so I'm excited about that. I hope you're excited. You're going to hear me talk and unpack that because it's heavy on my heart. Uh, but we are in the middle of a series right now, and the series is called called Written in Red. And the idea behind this series is that there are certain things that Jesus said that I think sometimes we either skip over or we disregard or we don't pay attention to because we hear them out of context and they don't necessarily make sense. It's the kind of phrases that don't end up on a t-shirt. They don't end up on a bumper sticker. We look at them and we go, whoo, I'm not sure what that's about. And we just kind of uh, dismiss that. And, I, and last week, if you're with us, I talked a little bit about how if I were to follow you around every day for three years and write down important things that I heard you say, and then someone were to ask me about you, and I just read one sentence randomly out of context, and that was what someone else had to uh, make a decision about what kind of person you are, that would be a horrible way for someone to learn about you. I might have learned a lot about you, but they would not get a lot of information based on one sentence out of context about you. But oftentimes we hear sentences out of context about Jesus, and then we make decisions about what Jesus thought, what he meant, who he is, how God interacted with mankind, all tied together to something that maybe we heard and it wasn't in context. And so today we're going to talk about a passage that I promise you don't have this on a t-shirt somewhere. If you do, I want that t-shirt. Bring it to me. 
We're going to talk about this radical thing that he says. He actually says similar things to this two to three occasions. But he says, hey, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. That's the whole message. So you guys are dismissed. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck. No, I'm teasing, right? If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Um, okay. Well, what am I supposed to do with that, Jesus? It doesn't look good on my refrigerator. Um, I don't want to stencil it in the kid's nursery. You know, it's not as cool as like a picture of Noah and some, you know, animals. What am I supposed to do with this information if my right eye causes me to sin, pluck it out? So I was thinking about how we all know people who make grandiose statements, and we wonder, can they really back that up? Is that really true? Come on, you know someone who anytime you tell a story, they tell a story, and their story is just like a little bit better than your story. You know people who have that ability, right? They talk about it, and, you know, they're the guys that tell you, you know, if coach would have put me in the game, right, they're, they're, they're older now. <laughs> but if coach would have put me in the game, we'd have won that game, and we would have went to state. If he would have put me in that game, we'd have won that game too, right? The same guys that could tell you they throw a football a quarter mile over a mountain. Some of you recognize the quote. <laughs> we know people who make those grandiose statements, and then we wonder if they can back that up. Sometimes in uh, church world, we make great statements, and I wonder if we'll back it up. Sometimes we like the power of a good one-liner, but then that one-liner isn't something we ever really back up. There was a book that came out while I was doing youth ministry. I was about five, six years into youth ministry, and I won't say the title of the book because maybe you love it. Um, I actually really did enjoy the book. The book had a premise talking to teenagers about the way they should interact with the opposite sex. And it was a profound, great, amazing book talking about purity and ways that they should interact. And I was like, this is the tool as a youth pastor I've been looking for. And so I read the book. And at the end of the book, I realized this guy had this epiphany and wrote the book, but he didn't actually do this. And I was like, oh, I want a book that's written by someone who actually lived it, who actually did it, who actually has the authority not to just say, I've had this great idea of what you should do with your life. I want him to say, this is what I did with my life and how God showed up and it worked. So when I look at scripture, like you should pluck your eye out if it causes you to sin or if it offends you, then I look through the rest of the story for where someone's missing an eye. Right? Because these guys wrote a lot of letters afterwards, and we have some of their story, and we have history, and we know guys like John lived maybe 60, 70 more years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, and nowhere do I see him with an eye patch. And so I start wondering, what is the nature of this kind of great and grandiose statement? Is it something that we're supposed to live? How do we interact with it? I'm a little confused. Um, did did I'm, anyone who heard this expect some kind of result to their behavior? Was it just kind of shock value? You know, a lot of times a, a good speaker will, will tell you something that really grabs your attention right off the bat. Is it just an illustration to kind of bring a point to, to bear? Or was there something deeper to this point? Because Jesus makes it a couple different times. 
So if we're going to get there, we'll have to walk through a, a piece of Scripture together. So if you have your Bibles, would you open to Mark chapter 9, and I'm, I'm going to get there with you. As you're getting there, I just got to tell you the backstory of what's going on, because remember, context matters. You have to understand who the audience is and how they would have understood this statement. Because he's going to say some crazy things. Literally, to our minds, crazy things. Awesome. Hilarious, maybe, if you have that kind of sense of humor, but crazy things. So it's important we recognize who he's talking to. So i got to give you a little bit of backstory. For the last three chapters, Jesus has been teaching from village to village. They're on foot. There's 12 disciples. You've met them before. They're walking around, and they're interacting with Jesus, and crowds are coming, and they're seeing miraculous, amazing things. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus pulls those 12 guys together and says, you're going to pair up, and then you're going to go out, and you're going to do the same things you've watched me do. He's discipling them. Remember, a disciple is someone who models the life and behavior of the master. And he says, you're going to go do this. And this is amazing. They go out, and it says that they do it. They do what Jesus was doing. They interact with people who are, uh, who are beset by unclean spirits, and they, they deal with it. They, they heal the sick miraculously. Now, I don't know about you, but my head, my ego, would be going like this. Right? If I went from fisherman or tax collector, and I was walking around with Jesus for a couple of years, and he's like, now you can go heal the sick. And I did it. That's awesome. That's who these guys are. They've been walking around with Jesus. They've experienced some incredible power. They've preached that people should repent. That was in Mark uh, chapter 6, right? Then they see this amazing miracle of food. Many of you know it. A few loaves and some fishes. And thousands and thousands and thousands of people get fed. This is amazing. This is before Walmart. Before there was a way to feed thousands and thousands of people at one time, even if they're in their pajamas. <laughs> this is before that. This is unheard of. Thousands and thousands of people get fed. That's huge. Then they see a man walk on water. Again, amazing, miraculous, insane to comprehend unless you're there. Or unless you know Jesus. As a result, they know Jesus. Peter has a moment where he declares that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus is like, you've got finally a picture of what's true. Now, shortly after that, he has a moment where he's like, you don't, you don't get to do what you want to do, Jesus. And Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. So, so he's got some mountains and valleys, right? He's, he's going from high water marks to low water marks. Then... Peter, James, and John go with Jesus up on a mountainside, and it says Jesus is transfigured. That's a big old word. Basically, they see him in what is his glorified body, in more than just a flesh body. They get a picture that he's God, that he's more than just this flesh body. And they come back down, and they're changed. They have a bigger picture idea of who Jesus is. You have to get this because this is the guy who's about to tell them, Pluck your eye out. They have to have some frame of reference of what's going on with that. So right before our story picks up, they interact with a man whose son is having problems, and they try to help his, the son, and they can't do it. And Jesus looks at him. He solves it. And then he says, hey, this kind of only comes out by prayer. So they've had a little bit of an ego blow. 
in the midst of all of this. And then Jesus begins to teach them. Now, what's important for you to recognize in this moment is last week we were talking about Jesus dealing with a large crowd. The circle has shrunk. Jesus is with his guys. So this statement about plucking your eye out, it's not a catch the crowd kind of a moment, right? He didn't go up on a mountainside, get close to the water so he'd have the natural acoustics of shouting his voice over the water. No one's paying attention. So he says, hey, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And everyone goes, right? That would be a good attention grabber. I might open with that line in that environment. I would understand that, but that's not what happens here. He's sitting with 12 guys who've been journeying with him who have witnessed miracle after miracle, who have some of them literally seen the glorified picture of who he really is when he breaks out of the flesh. That's amazing. They've seen food just appear where there was no food. They've seen a a body that has weight and mass and is bound to the law of physics step out onto water and not sink. This is amazing things that they've seen. And so they have a little bit of an ego shot. And then Jesus says in verse 30 of Mark chapter 9 that they left that place and they passed through Galilee. He didn't want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. Did you catch that? He's not with the crowd. He's like, I got I to school you guys for a little while. So we're going to remove ourselves from the distraction of the crowd. We're going to remove ourselves from the energy of the fanfare, of the fan base, of those that we talked last week a little bit about this idea that many had just the wrong picture of what Jesus was going to accomplish. So they were hyped up. They thought they were at a a political rally. They thought there was an overthrow of the government going to happen. Or they thought that maybe they could just get a free meal. And whatever it was, the crowds were surrounding the celebrity of Jesus, but they didn't know the heart of Jesus. So he moved away from the crowds and said, I have to teach those of you that are closer to my heart what it means to follow me. Verse 31, it says, because he was teaching his disciples, he said to them, the son of man is going to be be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they didn't understand what he meant, listen to this, and they were afraid to ask him about it. So they've witnessed him time and time again, confound people with answers that are bigger than even their comprehension can get. And so they just assumed that at some point he'll explain this and it'll make sense, but they were embarrassed to be the guy to ask the question. Where's Peter when you need him, right? Jesus, can you explain this to me? No, nobody steps up. They didn't ask him what he meant. It says, verse 33, then they came to Capernaum, and while he was in the house, he asked them, hey, what were you guys arguing about on the road? I love this. It says, but they kept quiet because on the way they'd argued about who was the greatest. Woo! You walk around with Jesus, you experience the power and authority of what Jesus does in your life, and pretty soon that carnal flesh nature of you starts measuring up and says, Jesus, is it possible you love Ryan more because he can sing better than me? Right? I mean, you made me better looking, but he can sing better than me. Right? So, so who's the greatest? Who do you love more? How, how, how do we measure that out? And they're arguing about it. doesn't say they were discussing it. So they had made some decisions. Just so you know, 
He took me and James and John up the mountain, and we saw the glorified self while you guys were down in the town. So obviously, we're a little bit greater than you. And you can imagine them saying, well, you weren't there when I prayed, and that person who was not well got well. So obviously, I'm a little, and, and it's getting tense in the, in the, in the core circle, right? And they're, they're fighting on the road. And they don't want to admit to Jesus that this is the thing they've been fighting about, which I think is brilliant. Again, they're constantly asking the wrong question. I can imagine them recapping the last couple of days and, and weeks of events and Peter saying, you know, he said, I'm the rock. And then saying, yeah, he also said, you're the devil. And so, you know, so how do you, how do you recognize that thing, right? There's some, there's some fighting going on in there, and that's amazing. I love that. So verse 35, Jesus is like, all right, settle down. He says, sitting down, Jesus called the 12, and he said, hey, if anyone wants to be first, he says, if, that, if that's the thing you're chasing after, let me explain how you get there. He says, if you want to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. Here's Jesus saying, you're asking the wrong question. You think greatness is about what you've done. I think greatness is about how you serve others on my behalf. You have the wrong thermostat of what it means to be great as a follower of Jesus. You think the guy with the microphone must be great. I think the guy in the parking lot is great. Those are both me today, so that's why you, I, I, I did that. <laughs> Just... I'm teasing, right? <laughs> I'm having fun with you guys because this is heavy stuff. But that's what he says. He says that, that is how you experience greatness. You think greatness is, is a demonstration of my power that comes through you like as a catalyst of that. That's not greatness. Greatness is a demonstration of my love when you serve. That's greatness. Well, they're in a fight, so that's not going to be enough to solve it. So verse 36 says he took a little child. And he had him stand among them, and he's taken him in his arms. He said to them, hey, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me doesn't welcome me, but the one who sent me. Now, this is a powerful picture in their time. Because children that are just running around like this, most likely, like, the child mortality rate of that time was so incredibly high that there were cultures, history tells us, they literally didn't even name their children until they got old enough. They were just, you know, the last name of the father, or, or uh, that was, until they got old, until you knew they were going to survive childhood. There were some cultures at that time, they wouldn't even name their children. They had very little rights and no standing. And Jesus grabs someone of no standing, pulls them close, and says, when you love someone like this who can literally do nothing for you and you welcome them in my name it's like you took care of me that's how you serve that's the picture and when you take care of me it's like you took care of the father that's the connecting point that he makes here they're asking the wrong question so he directs them verse 38 and I love this. this. This is my favorite part of the whole thing. We, when we read out of John, right, John always refers to himself as the beloved disciple. And it's my favorite way to talk about your, yourself in a whole scriptures. Because if I wrote about my time with Jesus, I would write about myself as the beloved disciple. Because why wouldn't I want to go down in history as the disciple that Jesus loved? But John's not writing this. And they're in a fight. So 
So we get another picture of John. It's like one of the few times that we get to hear John quoted and John didn't write it. So we hear that it's John from a guy who maybe doesn't think John is the greatest out of all of them. Verse 38. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name. And we told him to stop because he wasn't one of us. My inflection added there. Did you catch the tone, though? We saw a man. He was doing things that you gave us authority to do. He was representing you and your authority here on earth. So we said, knock it off. We're the special ones that get to do that. We're the ones he chose. Verse 39. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. Jesus is saying, hey. He has aligned himself with me, so don't worry about it. If my power is moving through him, there has been an alignment that has come. Verse 40, for whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth. Anyone who gives you a cup of cold water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. Here's John. Remember the tension in the group is a fight about who's the greatest. And probably a significant part of his argument for greatness is Jesus has selected them to walk with him and be empowered. And if an outsider, someone who's not in the inner circle, can also and equally be selected by Jesus and can also and equally move in the authority of Jesus, that messes with my argument about how awesome I am. That's not helpful. So he needs to knock it off. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 whoa. You guys have gone so far. From Do you see why he needed to corral just the 12? This would be a hard conversation to have with the crowd. But something has crept in, a arrogance, a pride, a sense of their own self-import. <laughs> Mark doesn't mention how much Jesus loves John in this at all, which I think is amazing. And now we start breaking out the really tough lesson that Jesus is going to unpack for them. Because they haven't been able to get it yet. He brought the baby up, right, the kid. And he's like, you got to just love like this, someone that can't do anything for you. Serving me is about loving people who can't return it in any way. It's not an, a, a means to an end. It is the end. Loving people is the end. And they're like, no, 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 no. Our job's bigger than that, right, Jesus? And they're like, ugh. So here comes Jesus. He's like, all right. Let me make this make sense for you guys. Verse 42, here comes the smackdown. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. Wait, what? Now, bear with me because of my generation, but I just have to say this. He went gangster, right? Not like, not like inner city gangster, like like mobster gangster, right? He said, if you mess with one of these little ones, you are going to swim with the fishes. So get your heads right. Now, little ones here is an interesting expression because he has a kid nearby, right, that he's talking about, but he also just referenced someone who was new in the faith who they didn't recognize as one of them, who was just getting started on their journey with Jesus. So there's a, a, a kind of a, a double uh, 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 
it encompasses both of those groups, not just someone who's young and innocent and doesn't know anything, but maybe someone who's just beginning their journey with Jesus. And if you who have walked with me for a while, you who have spent time with me, you who are fully armed with the power of the authority of having been with me and also maybe a knowledge of scripture or any of those things, if you go to someone who's just starting on their journey and you get a critical spirit, you cause them to stumble, you get judgy with them because they didn't do it the way you wanted to do it or under the timing and authority that you wanted to do it, and you crush that in them, he's like, "Uh uh-uh, don't you dare. Look at one of these little ones, these young ones, these beginners in the faith, these immature, innocent ones. Don't you dare, as someone who's walked with me, think that it's your responsibility to crush out the joy and the spirit that's in them as they have experienced what God can do to transform their lives. Don't you dare do that. The picture of a millstone is crazy. If you don't know what that is, think like a wheel on the Flintstone car, right? a big old cement wheel on the Flintstone car, and it would sit, like, um, if you were going to make, uh, uh, I don't know, food, meal, you would get, like, a bowl and a crusher, and you would put it in here, and you would, and you would crush it. I don't know if that's bad for the microphone. I'll stop doing that. But you would crush it, right? And then you'd have, like, these oats, and then you would put it, and you'd make a cake of bread, and you'd eat it, right? Well, that's easy to feed a person. If you need to feed a lot of persons, then you would go to this large millstone that was like a, a Fred Flintstone wheel on its side, and, and a person could barely push that thing around, but you would push it and grind it. So the phrase millstone actually comes from mule stone because they would tie a donkey off to it, and the donkey would just, if you had a good mule, he would walk around in circles all day long, and they would just throw the meal in there, and it would grind it up. Now, I want you to have that picture because I want you to see how heavy this thing would have been that they would have understood that if you had that tied to you and you were thrown into the sea, you were not going to survive that. Now, I also think there's a terror that he is implying when he talks about the sea. I was thinking about, I was like, these guys are fishermen, they probably, but they fished in lakes, right? I never heard of the Jewish Navy. It's not a thing. They didn't get out in the sea, that wasn't their thing. The Philistines and, and, and other cultures throughout the history of the scriptures all came out of the seas. They were always at war with people who came through the sea. But they fished in the lakes, and they farmed the ground. And so getting, telling them, I'm going to take, he could have said, I'll throw you in the lake. And they'd have been like, oh, you know, we caps, we're used to dealing with the lake. He's like, uh-uh. You're getting the heavy rock, cement shoes, sleeping with the big fishes in the sea if you mess with this, Okay. That's the authority. I just want you to catch the picture. This is heavy stuff he's breaking down for them. I was thinking about times even in my own life where folks I looked up to ahead of me in the faith maybe, maybe had opportunities to encourage me, to speak life into me, and many have. I wouldn't have been here if some didn't. But I was thinking, I was, I was in high school. I was a junior in high school. I was way better looking than I am now. Consequently, my head was this big. And I had this idea, because I had spoken one time at a youth group, that maybe I could speak more, and God could use that in me. I was just crazy enough to think that that could be a thing. And I'm at a summer camp, and we have this moment. I'll never forget that the speaker is an amazing man of God. He, he was talking about, uh, you can build an altar anywhere you are. And he had us turn around and just kneel before our chairs in this room, there's probably 
300 kids. I'm in Northern California. There's probably 300 kids, and we're just we're kneeling before chairs, and we're just crying out to God. We're building an altar and having a sacred moment. And I feel like for the first time I realized, God, you designed me to actually do this. I can do it. And then the following night, we're, we're having a testimony time, and we're sharing stories about what God's done. And there's a speaker there, and he's an older guy. Um, he's just visiting for the day. I hadn't been part of all the services. And, and uh, I respected him. I didn't know him, but, you know, he was older and doing ministry stuff, so I just assumed he was awesome. And he, he said, is there anyone in this room that, that feels like they've been called to ministry? I want you to stand up. And I stood up, and there was like four of us who stood up. And I was like, yes. And he goes, you don't know what you're talking about. Sit back down. <laughs> no joke. And then he used some profanity, and then he left. And I remember, like, my soul just crushed. And I was like, maybe I don't know. I really don't know what I'm talking about. And here's this person ahead of me in the race. And they just, it was like a nuclear missile into my sense of what God could do. And I'm fragmented, and God's putting me back together. And I probably needed to be fragmented. I think God probably used that to bring humility that, you know, he's still building, and, and I needed that. But, but I can just remember someone ahead of me in the race just crushing me. So I got to talk to the church folks for a second. Those of you that maybe like me have been journeying for a long time, and you're ahead in the race, are you using that position that God's entrusted you with to look backwards and encourage and bless and fill the tank of those, not younger, this isn't an age issue, but those who are coming behind in their faith, are you building them up? Jesus is like, you've been walking with me. Don't you dare crush somebody who's just starting their journey. Man, I haven't even got to the good stuff yet. Here we go, keep going. And then he says this, verse 43, here it comes. And if your hand causes you to sin, it is better, cut it off, it's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. All right, so let's pray. I don't know if I want to dive into that. Woo. All right. It says, and if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than for you to have two feet and be thrown into hell. Here it comes. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. Whoo! Jesus does not pull any punches with his inner circle. There is so much here. I'm just going to try to unpack some of it, and let's just agree that we're not going to get all the layers in one day unless you really want me to go another hour because I got an hour extra up here just in case you guys want to hang out. But uh, <laughs> listen, there's a couple things you need to know about this passage. First and foremost, for some of you, if you're reading along in your Bibles, and I should have looked at the screen, there's some verses that I may not have read, like 48. I don't think I read. No, I did read 48. Um, I didn't read 44. And I didn't read 46. And why didn't I do that? 
Well, let me tell you why. If you're looking at your Bibles, you're like, there's no 44 in my Bible. Maybe there is a 44 in your Bible. Basically, what we have here is a passage of Scripture that because it's so heavy and not necessarily clear over time in history, as it got translated and translated into English, there is some things that the scribes added in to make sure that we got the point or that pounded the point home. And all that's missing from 44 and 46 is 48, where it says where the worm, uh, the worm that eateth them, eat them. I got to King James's right there. Sorry. Where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire's not quenched. It's just that verse report repeated after each point to kind of pound that point home. And so the earliest and oldest manuscripts only put the point one time because they got the message. But in some of the middle time manuscripts, some scribes were like, hey, this is really good. Let's, you know, it's like when you, you ask for an amen after every sentence. All right. Hey, I just said this. Say amen. Good. And then I said that. Say amen. Right. They added that you want the emphasis. Right. So there was emphasis kind of added in there. And so most versions will say in the older documents that emphasis was unnecessary. They got the point. Jesus says it is better. Now, here's what's crazy. He can't be speaking literally here or we would have some stories of guys with plucked out eyes in this time. But we don't. So what in the world is he talking about? Well, we can start with talking about hell, because that's fun. The word there, Gehenna, I, I got to tell you, I tumbled down the, uh, the rabbit's hole studying this, and so I'm going to tell you what I understand, and I'm going to just ask for your permission to be half correct, all correct, maybe swinging a miss, but I'm going to get as close as I can to tell you. That term Gehenna, you probably for years have heard that there is a garbage dump outside of uh, Jerusalem and that they just threw garbage out there and lit it on fire. That's how they disposed of it, and that's Gehenna. I can tell you archaeologically there is no evidence that that actually is the case. That, that is not necessarily the description of what that is, okay? So, so for many years I just believed that he was talking about a physical garbage dump that was outside of the city that they lit on fire, and he was making a metaphor picture that it's better to just be thrown in the garbage, uh, or better to you know, have one hand cut off than be thrown out into the garbage. That's not really the picture. The Valley of Hinnom or Gehenna, the same word, is actually a literal place. But where it shows up is way back in the Old Testament in Jeremiah. So I'm going to take you just really quickly, Jeremiah chapter 7. I know this is a lot of history, but I like the history. Hopefully you like the history. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 31, something incredibly horrible is happening. It says that they have built their high places of Topheth in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. That's Gehenna. That's the same word for hell that he uses. To burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something I did not command, nor did it enter into my mind. This is God speaking. So beware, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the people will no longer call it Topheth or the valley of Ben-Hinnom, but they'll call it the valley of slaughter, for they'll bury their dead in Topheth until there's no more room. The carcasses of this people will become food for the birds and the airs and the beasts of the earth. There'll be no one there to frighten them away, and I'll bring an end to the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of the bride and the bridegroom and the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem will become desolate. All right, I read that really fast because I just wanted you to catch a picture. In the history of this people group, there was a very dark time where they were doing human sacrifice in this valley. And as a result, there was kind of this sense that this was a cursed, awful place and that people died there, that it was it was condemned. And so you don't need the garbage dump in order to make the point. They would have understood there is not a worse place that we look back in the history of our people than where we rebelled from God and lost a generation of our children to our own maniacal devices, right? 
So when Jesus says it would be better to have your hand removed than to have both hands and end up, come on now, destroyed. That's the picture he's painting. That's pretty heavy. That's pretty heavy. And that's, that's the reference that he's talking about. Isaiah 66, 24 says it too, but I, I won't get there. So what is Jesus saying? It's interesting that he picks eyes and hands and feet. Those particular body parts aren't uh, as any more significantly connected to bad behavior than others. He could have said stomach and heart. He could have said a lot of different things, but he picked some things. He said, hey, it'd be better that you cut off that hand. And what do we do with our hands? We engage with things. We touch things. We do things with them. We build things. We make things. So it'd be better if you didn't do any of that than if you use that to cause people to go farther away from me than closer. He said it'd be better to just chop off that leg than it would be to go to places that take you farther out of relationship with me or cause others to move to a place where they're farther out of relationship with me. It'd be better if you plucked that eye out than if you used it to engage, come on now, with things that take you farther away from me or cause others to move farther away from me. It's not physical mutilation. Here's how I know it's not physical mutilation. If I stole something, let's just use that as an example. I didn't, but, you know, I may have, I don't know. And I cut off my hand. You cut off my hand. Has it now inhibited my ability to ever steal again? Has it cured my soul condition of a person who steals? Has it, does, has it done that? Oh, let's go, let's go more, more uh, in depth. If you plucked my eye out, can I still be greedy, lustful, desire what's not mine, what's not best? What if you plucked both of my eyes out? Could I still have that heart and that attitude? So we know that doesn't actually solve the problem. So Jesus has moved away from, he's in a metaphor now, and he's establishing something. And basically he's saying, and I'm going I'm to bring this home. He's saying, you have to get away from things that are entangling you into behavior that is drawing you away from me. And you have to have the courage to make radical decisions, not just small decisions, not incremental decisions, radical decisions. Amputation has to occur. If you are close to things that are causing you to move away from me or tempt others to move away from me, you had better be willing to deal with that stuff because it would be better to be missing that thing that you think you want and have it cut out of your life than to hold on to that and end up apart from me. He's not talking just to the crowds. Now, he does say something like this to the crowds in Matthew chapter 5 at the end of the Beatitudes in what I would consider the kind of the, the big political coming out speech. He does address a similar metaphor to this idea. He says if you've sinned uh, in your heart, then you've sinned already. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. So he does. This is a message that is core to his nature and to him describing what it means to follow him. And he's declared it to the crowds. But this isn't just about the crowds getting a pretty message 
metaphor. This is about those who say they're close to Jesus, understanding that you could think you're close to Jesus, but be cross-contaminated with things that are taking you the opposite direction of Jesus. And if those things are contaminating your heart and your soul, he says, cut it out. You got to deal with it. You got to be willing to deal with it. It's interesting because time and time again, Jesus indicates that it's not what's outside of a man that makes him unclean. It's what's inside. So we know throughout the scriptures that things that are outside is not what makes you unclean. It's what's on the inside. He is constantly trying to get at what organ in us, our heart. He wants to know that we on a heart level are connecting to him because it's best and it's better for us. Mark 7, 20, just a few chapters before, he said, what comes out of a man isn't what makes him unclean. For within, from within, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. All these evils come from inside a man and make him unclean. He says, all the stuff that you need to deal with is stuff that's in here. But you think you need it, just like you think you need both hands. He's like, it'd be better to not have that be better to cut it out, to perform surgery, to deal with it. Nothing we do on the outside will fix the problem. Let me wrap this up, and then I'll, I'll bring us home. Verse 49. This is just crazy. It says, everyone will be salted with fire. Okay. <laughs> Literally, that's what I know about that. Okay. <laughs> everyone will be salted with fire. All right, maybe I know a little bit more than that. I can tell you this is an expression that through time and history, we've lost with certainty what that expression means. Of all the expressions in the scripture, this is one of the hardest uh, ones to say with certainty. As, as I studied and studied and studied, I found there's probably no less than 15 like strongly backed interpretations of what this means. And uh, so people who love Jesus disagree about what this means. But here's what I know. There's only one place in the scripture where salt and fire meet, and that's at the altar. Okay, so uh, in Ezra, we, we hear that uh, salt is a critical component in the sacrifice. Essentially, what happens in this culture, um, they, they have a sacrifice, an animal that they're going to sacrifice. They gut it, they bleed it out, and they need to get it on the fire, and it's, you know, a carcass. And so they don't have refrigeration or all the tools that we have. So they throw salt in there to kind of tighten it up and hold it until they're ready to put it on the, on the sacrifice. And essentially, the picture of salted with fire is this idea that each and every one of us are intended to be purified and ready before God to experience that fire. Now, there's a lot of ways to look at that. So I just gave you one. You can think what you want. There's, you know, a lot of ways to do it. But essentially, he's saying, he's just got done saying, you're going to have to clean up, right, things in your life that are holding you back because everyone's going to experience the purifying work of God. We're all going to be close. My God is a consuming what? Yeah. Everyone's going to get salted. Verse 50, salt is good, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? We talked a little bit about this last week. It got real. He was talking to the crowds there, though. He's talking to his closest guys, and he's using the same picture. And I got thinking, how does salt lose its saltiness? Salt is, uh, you know, I'm not a chemist, but salt doesn't just degrade over time. It doesn't eventually become just white crystals. If it's salt, it's always salt. It only loses its saltiness 
when it is mixed with other things, when it's contaminated, it loses the nature of its flavor. And here's Jesus. He's painting a picture, right? He's saying, do not find yourself in a place where you're contaminated, where you've let things into your life that have cross-contaminated you. You were intended to be salt. And the way that salt loses its saltiness, contamination. It's about being pure. How can you make it salty again? Nope. We know what happens to it, right? It gets tossed out. Finally, he says, have salt in yourself. And then he ends it with, hey, and be at peace with one another. Remember, this is a conversation of guys that are in a fight. See, we lose that. He says, have salt within yourselves and be at peace with one another. Whoa. It's not about being great. It's about doing the best you can with what you have. I was thinking about this idea that Jesus really knows everything that's going on in my heart. And sometimes I think, like, no one knows, so I'm okay. But can you imagine for a minute, I got a projector screen here, and Zanina's back there typing it up. Can you imagine if Zanina was able to look in the back of your head and see any of the things in your life that are taking you away from Jesus? And she would just bring up your name. It would say, like, Pastor Mike, and then the list, she'd just start typing all the things. Can you imagine how we would feel in that moment if that level of magnifying glass was placed on your life and, and everyone could see what was going on? How urgent would it be to you to deal with the things in your heart that you've been holding on to and hanging on to to get them cut out if you knew that next week, come on, all of us were going to get to have a, a turn exploring. Hey, it's Damien's turn. Let's put him up there and let's see everything that's going on in his heart and in his life, right? And then next week will be here. Would you show up? Well, I don't think so. I was thinking about that, right? And here's Jesus, and he's talking to his closest guys. And he's saying, there's some things in your heart, and I know what they are. He's talking to you, and there's some things going on, and I know what they are. And I have a plan for you that's better. And I have a destiny for you that's better. Come on, I have a way for you to experience victory and freedom. And you think you can hold on to those things and still somehow manage. You weren't designed to just manage. You were designed to experience freedom and fullness. It's better. So you've got, now, here's the problem. We, I'm going to say this, it's going to be tough. We want to engage with things that damage and harm our life all week long and then think, okay, we're going to unload that again and somehow suddenly experience victory. And, and I'm, I'm just going to tell you something here. If you are holding on to something over and over and you keep coming back to it and it's part of your life and you're letting it, it is hard to battle something that has that kind of control of you. I'm just going to be frank. You're not that powerful on your own. Right? We get this picture like, oh, Satan's defeated, step on his head, and it's true. But you didn't do that. Jesus did that. And if you think you versus Satan is a fair fight, you are greatly deluded. You're greatly deluded. If you think you versus the thing you're battling is a fair fight, you are greatly deluded. Jesus understood that. And he said, you can't just kind of cohabitate with that thing and experience victory. It's not going to work out well for you. He's so strong that he looks at his closest inner circle and he says, remember that valley 
where in the worst point in the history of our people, we sacrificed our children and, burnt, and bodies were burning. That, that's the place, that's the picture of a destination of someone who thinks they can just hold on to their stuff and not move towards Jesus and not trust Jesus and not allow me to take it, but I'll take it from you. I'll deal with it. I'll bring freedom. I'll bring restoration. But you got to be willing to let me cut that thing off. And it would be better if you let me cut it off. It'd be better if you trusted me. I'm going to bring the usher, I'm sorry, the elders up. Um, we're going to close here in just a moment with communion. And I know we, we, it's been heavy, so I, I feel that it's been heavy, and I, I understand that. And if you don't like what I said, just send me the email you want to send me. It's okay. It's, it's, it's Andrew underscore F at ccphillips.com. <laughs> send it over. Pastor Andrew's like, thanks. Why does the sin need to be cut out? Because we were not designed to carry the consequences of that sin. The Bible tells us that the consequences of sin is death. And you weren't designed to carry death. And when you do, it brings all kinds of repercussions. It brings guilt. It brings shame. It brings all of the things that take you in, in, in your journey with Jesus, the opposite direction of what Jesus does. Jesus brings life and hope and fill, fulfillment. It, it, it's the whole other thing. Colossians 2.13, Paul says it this way. He just defines the whole gospel. He says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away and he nailed it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is why it's huge that they didn't ask the question about his death and resurrection that he explained because they couldn't get a picture of him having the authority to defeat the thing that was building inside of them that was unclean. But we have the power of hindsight and we can recognize what he's trying to teach them is you weren't designed to carry around in your body's death. But he won't just cut it out. You gotta say, here it is, Lord, you can have it. You have to partner. Your will has to join in just a moment, I'm going to pray. I'm going to have the ushers pass out. I'm sorry, the, the elders pass out the uh, communion elements. And then I'm going to play on the screen because you heard a lot of my voice, someone else's voice. And he's going to explain kind of this principle. And then as he does, the band's going to come and we're going to close in a moment of worship. But here's what I want to invite you to do. Paul said when we do this thing that we're about to do, communion, we should examine ourselves. We should take a little look in the per proverbial mirror and say, hey, here's what's in me. And I don't know what's in you today. Zanina doesn't know. Don't worry. She's not going to put it on the screen. If she did know, I would probably not let her do it. <laughs> probably. Teasing. But you know, and the Lord knows. And my invitation for you today is to have a transparent, honest moment with God. And no one else is going to know your thing, what's going on. No one's going to know. And some of you, it's hard to be honest about it, even with yourself. I mean, let's face it. Who looks in the mirror and says, you know what your problem is, Mike? It's greed. Wait, what? Sometimes it's not till we hold our life up to what Jesus laid out that it begins to say, you know what your problem is? You know what your problem is? 
from is we need Jesus. We need the victory that he's promised. We need to model our life in that direction. So I'm going to pray. The screen's going to pop. Just pay attention. Hold on to the elements, and then the worship team's going to come. Jesus, we love you. I'm so incredibly humbled by just that your, your willingness to go there. Sometimes it defeats my picture that I have of you when I actually interact with your voice. Sometimes I have this picture that there's, there's, there's just, you know, less severity than there is. But the, the truth is love demanded that you give us access to wholeness, to moving away from the things that have entangled us. And, and so, God, sometimes you have to speak harsh enough for us to just get it, even those of us that are close to you. So, God, I just pray that in this moment you would squeeze out of us the things that maybe don't look like you, that we recognize are holding us back from moving towards you. We want to give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 2. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me. You followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. Remember, this is God speaking. And sometimes we think of God as like this machine up there, this, you know, with no feeling. He just judges. He just controls everything. You guys, listen to the words he uses. God is speaking to this nation, and he says, I remember how devoted you were to me. But then he says in in verse 5, What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? Doesn't that sound like so many of our lives? Where we were so connected with God, God made things so wonderful, and then we run away towards something else. Something else entices us, and God's left there going, what did I do? My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. The people committed two sins. One was they chose their sin. But I think what really broke the heart of God was that they chose their sin over Him. God's going, wait a second. So you left me, the spring of living water, to go do your own thing because you thought maybe you could dig a hole big enough and then fill it up with water so this would be a better supply? He goes, and it's a broken cistern. It doesn't even hold water. That's what temptation is. Things that draw us away from Him, things that we choose over a love relationship. And it's not that you don't love God. You love God, right? I mean, you love God in your heart, but every once in a while there's this reality of there's this real pull from inside of you towards something that God prohibits. And you're feeling it so bad. And you're going, what is wrong with me? I know I love God. Why do I feel this way? We're going, God, I don't want to go there. And we know it's not going to fulfill. We know we can't be happy outside of God. But everything in us is pulling us that way. What do we do? Here's what we do. The Bible says... Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He says, set your mind on things above, not earthly things. It's the idea of a person being so focused on this love relationship, you're not even noticing anything else. You don't know what else is going on in the room. You're just so focused on Jesus, so in love and so thinking about eternal things 
That's the idea. We have to run toward Jesus, the author and perfecter. We have to fix our eyes on him so that all these things are dangling in front of our face, but we don't even notice it. There's one reason why you should walk away from whatever temptation you're facing right now. There's just one reason. God is better. He is. He's so much better. It's not even a comparison. God is better.